You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience. This is Daniel Horowitz here in the new month of September, the new week, the new frontier. Uh, When the critters from Congress finally return, we got obviously the Supreme Court confirmation hearings. We got the budget battle. And we got all of the issues that we know will not be addressed but need to be addressed. You know, it's late in the day on Labor Day. And, uh, you know, because I don't really believe in Labor Day, I kind of work a little bit, even even as I deal with the kids on their final day off of school. Um, you know, here in Maryland, they go all the way till the day after Labor Day. I know a lot of your kids already started school. But, uh, man, <laughs> it's been a hectic weekend. And, you know, I, I say this every year. I know I say this every year. But imagine if kids would start off the school year every year celebrating rather than some just bogus, phony Labor Day, which is meaningless and no one understands what it is, where it came from. Imagine if we actually celebrated Constitution Day. Today I want to tie in, in honor of Labor Day, two special days that converge around this time of year. VJ Day, Victory in Japan Day, which was yesterday. Unfortunately, it's not really you know celebrated much anymore, which is very sad. And Constitution Day, which is coming up in two weeks, September 17th. And nestled in between is September 11th, 17th anniversary. And By understanding these days, which kind of seem very disparate, VJ Day, Constitution Day, but I want to develop a theme of a vision, how we used to have visionaries, people who had a vision, ironclad principles, strategies to implement and accomplish the goals that are built upon those principles. And that's what built this country In 1787, that's what saved this country in the 1940s. That's what helped make America the dominant power for the ensuing ensuing decades. And sadly, that's the fire, the fire of that vision that is missing today. When there's so many opportunities and so many imperatives for Congress and the political leadership to deal with before this election for the remainder of this year, and a lot of it will go unknown. But certainly not on this show. So there's a lot to get to today. Uh, Just first, one note on Labor Day. (laughs) In honor of Labor Day, I want you guys to go to firetheswamp.com. Firetheswamp.com. Um. There is legislation called the Merit Act. It's being promoted by a bunch of friends of mine who started this website. Um, it, it was introduced by Representative Barry Loudermilk and Senator David Perdue. And it will make it easier 
to fire these career civil service um, individuals. And, you know, again, I would argue that pursuant to statute, all of this stuff, pursuant to the Constitution, I mean, all, all of these statutes are unconstitutional because the president as the chief executive officer can fire anyone. But nonetheless, I mean, I think, you know, this will make it a lot easier and uh, it's it's really needed. You know, government workers will complain they they don't get a pay raise. The, but the bottom line is the average salary for federal workers is about one hundred twenty five thousand. Um, for everyone else, it's about seventy two thousand. You cannot have a private sector shouldering that. You can't have a hundred fifty pound guy carrying a two hundred fifty pound guy. It doesn't make any sense. So um, there's your Labor Day for you. But on to more important things. So, you know, I was thinking that this was uh, Sunday. I I always remember – and look, you know, I'm just as guilty as everyone else. I probably wouldn't even remember VJ Day. Uh, but it's my mother's birthday, September 2nd every year. So it's easy for me to remember. That was – I mean, officially the the war ended a couple weeks earlier – I believe, what was it, August 15th, but that was the day, September 2nd, that the official ceremony of the surrender took place on board the USS Missouri, and that marked, you know, by by extension, not just the end of the Western theater, but the end of the entire World War II. And I think what is so significant about it in my mind, before we kind of glean the lessons that I think it's worth commemorating um, in the time we live in, is that you know a lot of us often think of the war as being over when you know really the beginning of the end was Normandy, the D-Day invasions, um, the worst being Omaha Beach, and then obviously things kind of going you know going uphill for us, downhill for the Germans, with the exception of the Battle of the Bulge. And then, you know, pretty much over with in the spring of 1945. What we forget often is that even though only about 20% of our forces were diverted to the Western Front, in many respects, the, the, the Japanese Front was even worse. And that went on for another half a year. You know, while we were wrapping up Europe, you had the worst battles taking place and the unsettled business in the Western theater that are just unfathomable if you look at today's warfare um, that we fight. And and I just think it's worth commemorating um, for those of you in the audience who have parents or grandparents or great uncles uh, who served on the Western Front. You know, I to my knowledge, I don't have anyone. Everyone in my family, um, my grandfather, great uncle, they the uh served in the in the eastern front but it is just unbelievable what they endured you know and and, and this is what is so necessary I, I would love you know we should just turn vj day into one just you know world war ii commemoration day i think because it would work perfectly um to start the beginning of the school year and where the kids would learn as they're coming into a new grade 
about World War II. They think, oh, you know, Japan bombed the world, bombed the Pearl Harbor, and then we kind of got mad at them, and we dropped a bunch of atomic bombs, and we killed a bunch of people, and we were mean, bad people. They don't teach them that this was not a given that we were going to win. You know, you look qualitatively at the planes and ships we had, the planes and ships they had, especially towards the beginning of the war. Qualitatively, it was it was pretty equal. If anything, there were on certain measures at the beginning of the war, we were behind. And and these people, you know, were much tougher fighters on average than the Germans were. I mean, picture the kind of, you know, Japanese almost machine-like dedication with Islamic fervence. I mean, they it was this craziness that just took over that period of time for the emperor where they were suicidal and they fought to the last man and did everything they could. The grit that it took to win that war with divine, with divine providence is unbelievable. A- again, if you just look at the Japanese theater alone, which is often overshadowed by the German front, it's just it's it's amazing. And that's the thing. Ju- just the end of the war, where you think you know, you kind of think, oh, you know, midway was kind of over with. Um, you know, that that's when things turned. And and you look at the battles. You know, I used to always think that. When it, when it comes to World War II, you know, Omaha Beach was the end all. I mean, that was the most hardcore, daring, amphibious invasion of all time and everything. And what's amazing is you look at the Western Front, and every single battle was an amphibious invasion, the hardest form of, of, of warfare, where you had heavily fortified islands where they would literally fight to the last man. And, um, you know, it was just just up and down the, the whole Pacific front. It was just awful. The amount of people who died in the Navy and the, and the um, you know, the Marines, the sacrifice. It's it just, you know, to me, that's America. The values it took. The, the, the generals, the leadership, the civilian and military leadership we had, you know, a Democrat leadership at the time, but the military leadership was just amazing. They did everything they could to win as quickly as they can with what they had, with as few casualties on all sides, which you always achieve by being the most decisive. And um, that's the thing. They went on to, you know, um, you know, Guadalcanal. Obviously, very, very bloody. You could, you could, uh, siphon. Um, I mean, you could, you could write books on each one. They're all our books on each one. Um, the naval battles, the the amphibious invasions, um, just unreal. Carl C. You know, but but again, that was in 1942. So you think of 42, you, got, you have Carl C. You think of Guadalcanal. That was November 1942, and then you're like, all right, we turn the corner. But just in 1945 alone, so, so you know, you had Guam. Um, obviously, Saipan was 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 huge. That that was in in uh, around the same time as um, 
as D-Day, often overshadowed. But the final two battles of the war that each lasted two, three months in, in the late winter and, and, and going all the way ending in, in June, Iwo Jima and Okinawa. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, yeah, World War II is over with. You know, yeah, we defeated the Germans. I mean, it's it's just unreal, unreal. Um, you know, in Iwo, Iwo Jima, just just the casualties alone in all these all these battles was was just enormously terrible, terrible. Um, but the amount of people we lost, we lost like twenty six thousand. I mean, there's twenty six thousand casualties, six seven thousand killed in um in Iwo Jima, and. You know, obviously the Japanese had who knows how many, maybe twenty thousand dead, and then you had a couple of months later Okinawa, the final battle there, which was just unfathomable, fourteen thousand dead Americans, um, you know, tens of thousands of wounded, and then obviously you know Jap- the Japanese must have had you know a hundred thousand or so, and then who knows how many, a hundred, hundred fifty thousand civilians, and you know. You think of Mount Suribachi in Iwo Jima as you know the ultimate battle, and the Shuri Line in um, Okinawa. Just the weather and the diseases they had to fight through because you know this was ongoing for a couple months. The lack of food; they would fight for four days straight without food, without, and then you know, th- then above all else, you had the naval ships that had to stay because they couldn't take the, it took so long to take the land and they had to continue supporting the mission then the kamikazes came in the kamikazes were you know it's kind of like a footnote but it was devastating you know they just didn't care and they would just crash into these boats you know thousands were hardly hundreds were killed in the devastation just from the kamikazes alone that was america the fact that we 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 did that, and I, I just want to make a couple of notes here uh, to commemorate. You know, these uh, revisionist clowns like to bash Truman and and uh, you know the the decision by our government to drop the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. A lot of people forget, you know, what happened seventy three years ago in nineteen forty five because of Iwo Jima and Okinawa. Okinawa Okinawa was the final stop before the Japanese mainland. And they made a very simple calculation. They were like, wait a minute. So if just to take this island, they fought every inch to the last man with every suicidal tactic. So, and and again, there were, you know, we killed over 100,000 Japanese personnel. It was pretty much, it was was every, every person, every single person. Um, you know, they, they invented those flamethrowers, those tanks that would shoot out these uh, flames a couple hundred yards to go inside the caves. I mean, that's what they had to do. They just wouldn't stop. So you can imagine if they would have done a full-scale invasion of, of the main island, I mean, could you imagine the millions? And then, again – you know, nowadays you're not allowed to care about your own military, but you know we lost um, 
again, what was it? 14,000, I think, in Okinawa, but, but tens of thousands wounded. Um, I mean, it just it just totally overshadows uh, o- Omaha Beach. I mean, obviously, that was mainly one day, and this was, gosh, this was for um, at least eight weeks. But what was amazing is that the number of civilian casualties, because the Japanese employed them, conscripted them to the military or just whatever. I mean, you know, they just had to do what they had to do. So, you know, I always tell people that it's likely that as many or more civilians, so to speak, died in Okinawa than in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So forget about American lives. Just if you're worried about civilians, the truth be told, if we would have done an amphibious invasion on the mainland, aside from it being devastating to our country, you would have lost, you know, millions of Japanese. Millions. So the the entire thesis behind, oh, we shouldn't have bombed, shouldn't have dropped a bomb is just bullcrap. But anyway, you look at a people and they understood what was at stake. You had the values and morals of a people, of a nation behind these fighting men. It was a nation that turned to God, and it was a nation upon which God smiled. 73rd anniversary. That was America then. We had a mission. We knew right from wrong. We knew what we wanted to accomplish, and we were willing to do whatever it took to accomplish it, even though the enemy was unbelievably industrious, extremely smart, and suicidal. I mean, the worst combo you could ever have. It's often forgotten the the, the sheer danger. And, and more than anyone else, we were attacked. They they attacked us, even more so than the Germans, I mean, at least directly. So that was that was an imperative. And it's just it's just terribly sad as I think about this, and I see in you know more news today. US military says American service member killed. Another wounded in an insider attack in eastern Afghanistan. Sixth American killed this year. For what? To what end? Where's our vision? What, so we can go and train the Afghani molesters who are Islamists just like the Taliban and are indistinguishable and then feel bad and take in 20,000 Afghanis every year and endanger our country? Could you imagine... America back then putting up with an invasion of our homeland, much less willingly bringing in problems. So that's VJ Day. When else did we have a vision? To get an early start in Constitution Day, you know, I think um, you know, this was the time in 1787. When they were wrapping things up at the convention, it started at the end of May, went through that hot, sticky summer in Independence Hall in Philadelphia until they ratified – they not ratified it. They sent it to the states for ratification or they sent the message to the Continental Congress in New York on September 17, 1787. And that's another thing that we kind of take for granted as a footnote in history. That, yeah, you know, we fought a war, independence, now it's time to form a government, and uh, we got in a room and formed a constitution. See, 
what this country was founded on is a vision. History has shown that it's very easy to be an anti. It's very easy to be a revolutionary, not to diminish their contributions, but it's somewhat relatively easy to find parallels in other countries, other nations' histories, your Patrick Henrys, your Sam Adams, your John Hancocks. Down with tyranny, down with this, let's fight back, let's throw out the oppressors, let's throw off the status quo. But what is it that we seek? What is the form of government? What is, it, what is the nation we want to be? That is what is so difficult. People don't realize America pretty much fell apart during the Articles of Confederation. You had Shays' Rebellion, you had all the, I mean, the inflation, there was no food and the debt, and it was just an utter disaster. We're a laughingstock, colonies fighting each other, it looked like you'd even have a shooting war between colonies. You have to keep in mind that, you know, when they got in that room at, at um, Independence Hall, you didn't, you know, you didn't have America. It's like, you know, someone from Greece and someone from Spain getting in a room and saying, well, we're, your, we're all Europeans. But, you know, I'm, I'm Greek, you're Spanish. So I'm a Virginian, you're, you're a Pennsylvanian, you're a New Yorker. That's how they viewed themselves. This was, this was, it, it, this was a miracle probably bigger, in my view, in magnitude than the miracle of throwing off the British and winning the Revolutionary War. Putting, if you understand the culture and the economics, the nature of what was going on with the 13 colonies, to put them all in a room and form a national government with the perfect balance, and it really was a very, you know, as perfect as, as can get. As Benjamin Franklin said at the end when he gave his famous speech and he said, you know, I can't, I can't tell the way the sun is setting or rising, but now that I look above General Washington's chair where he was presiding over the convention, I could see the sun is rising. He said, you know, this is not a perfect document, but I'm not convinced it's not as perfect as we can get. It, it vo- very well might be. Despite the acrimony and the divisions, it was unbelievable. But it was because after having a Sam Adams and a Patrick Henry to break – the, the cycle of the British, there were visionaries. You had a Madison who came with a plan. You had a James Wilson. You had a Roger Sherman. You know, so, so Madison came with his perfect government, his perfect plan. He knew exactly what he wanted, but he met stiff opposition from the smaller states. Patterson, um, who later became among the first uh, Supreme Court justices from New Jersey. New Jersey was a small state back then. Delaware, they're like, no, we're, we're not doing this. We're not doing this. We're not doing proportional allocation. And it, 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 they, they almost walked out. It was bad. And that's when uh, that was the other major speech that Benjamin Franklin gave, um, you know calling for everyone to turn to God, that, that God had answered their prayers so many times in that hall when they met during the revolution. Um, well, why not turn to him for a positive step forward? What do we do now? And really, it was, it was the gravitas of Franklin and, most importantly, George Washington. 
driving it forward as a steady hand. He badly wanted a deal. And then finally, it was his signature, his letter of um, approbation for uh, the Constitution that he sent to the Continental Congress in New York. This is the best we can get. This is a good document. I support it. That that got the nation behind it. It was it was down. It was a miracle, you know. And Roger Sherman came out with the famous uh, compromise, the Great Compromise, the bicameral legislature, and. Uh, you know, the rest is history. They had a vision. You read the Federalist Papers, and they understood what they wanted from each branch of government, what they wanted from the states, what they wanted from the feds, and the philosophy of governance behind it. It really was as perfect of a document as you can get in any time, much less that time. That was relatively hard compared to other nations forming. Because you really had 13 nations at odds with each other. Obviously, you had slavery, which was a big issue. Most of the founders abhorred it. Even some of the ones that owned slaves didn't feel comfortable with it, wanted to prospectively abolish it. But you had the southern colonies that just, they would not come along without it. And then you would have had slavery forever or you know indefinitely in those places anyway. They had a vision. That's what our country was founded upon. It was the same thing with Lincoln in the Civil War. How could you how could you win a civil war by fighting and killing your own people? But he had a vision. He was like, we're going to go full bore to kill as many as quickly as possible, sadly of our own countrymen, so that we can reconcile. And that's the only way America has to come together. And here we are, you know, you had the revolutionary period, the founding constitution we celebrate September 17th, the end of World War II, you know, officially commemorated September 2nd. And here we are talking about Labor Day. (laughs) But we always were a nation where we understood right and wrong and we understood what we wanted from our government, what we expected from our people. And for what we beseech God. Now, turning the clock ahead, you come to this September. You have a conservative movement with their ragged, ragtag vehicle of the Republican Party. In the waning session before the election, this is the peak of their power. We've said this many times. Best case scenario, they lose seats in the House, but don't lose control of the House. Even if they get a couple Senate seats here and there, it's not going to matter. They're never going to get 60 seats. What is it we want to do? If you're a conservative and you consider yourself a conservative, and you're like me and you don't have a real job for a living, and you do this type of stuff for a living, what is it you want Because now's the time to push it. The last budget battle before you might lose control of the House, where with a simple majority in the House, you could pass a bill that codifies your values and your vision in a budget, and and the president will stand behind it and says, I will only sign the House bill. You, Senate, must act. 
by September 30th, what is it we want? Where's our vision? This is what I just can't wrap my arms around. There's no one with a vision. I mean, this is what I say. We could have 100 seats in the Senate, and they won't know what to do with themselves other than, well, I'll tell you what we're our vision. Our vision is fighting the liberal media. We now have a movement that views fighting the liberal media as an ends, not a means. <laughs> what is our ends? We were, we were once a country and a people with a mission, a people with an intellect, a people with values, with a drive for excellence. What is it we want from our, from our elected members, from our unelected members, from the courts, from the states? What is it that we want? Here at Conservative Review, you know, just with the small staff we have, we've done as good of a job as we can, trying to give that vision issue after issue as they come up or even as they don't come up in the news but should come up and we'll make a big deal out of them. We'll publicize those issues with the accompanying strategies to implement them. And I'm going to continue doing that until I can no longer do it trying to find an audience with people that are going to listen and watch that little fire spread into a movement. That's the thing now. See, if Democrats wind up winning this election, if they wind up winning this election, and let's say, for argument's sake, they win in 2022, I'm not worried so much about the end of the world, as crazy as they are. I know that within a couple months, we'll have our Patrick Henrys, we'll have our Sam Adams, everyone will be, it will be the new Tea Party, whatever you call it, down with tyranny, down with these people. And you know what? The public doesn't want what they're selling. They'll fall out of favor with the voters even quicker than Republicans did. But the question becomes, then what? Then what? Where is our our Madison and Sherman and Wilson and Patterson? Where's our vision? What is it we want? Say what you want about them. I know some of you agree, disagree. I think most of you agree. But at least the convention of the state's movement, Article 5 movement, supported and strongly led by Mark Levin, at least there's a vision. There's an understanding. Look, what we're doing is not working. We've lost our system of governments you know, upside down, inside out. It's unimaginable. We're going to have this entire discussion this whole month over Judge Kavanaugh, and I'm telling you fundamentally it's not going to change the judiciary because the judiciary and the Constitution itself has fundamentally been changed. So it doesn't matter at this point until we change it back. Just in one day in a lower court, we point this out all the time with our listicles, you know, 10 crazy court cases just in one, one week that are so devastating and consequential. They engage in a constitutional convention, which is not what an Article 5 is because that's more specific to a very rigid subject matter. You can't just open it up to any issue. But talk about opening up to every issue. They have that every day. They accomplish it. My only rub against the um, 
uh, you know, Article Five movement is just how do we do it? How do we even get there? And even they'll they'll tell you that even if we did get there, what we hope to accomplish is very modest because you're just never going to get 38 states to sign on to anything that's that's consequential. I guess term limits would be the biggest one that probably would you know allure bipartisan support at least among the people, not among the politicians. You know, obviously, I think the only way to really do that politically is just to enact it prospectively rather than apply to current members. So at least, you know, they're not going to, you know, hopefully they wouldn't vote against it. But the point is, I don't know what ultimately the answer is, but we need a constitutional convention style meeting of the minds of people that work in this full time, that have dedicated their careers and their time and their effort and their resources to this and get into a room and understand that what we're doing is not working. The Republican Party is not serving us. Our system is so much bigger than one election or one temporary issue or media hot take. It's so much bigger than that. The reason why I'm starting out, I'm kicking off this kind of fall season, although it's appallingly hot here, no fall here. It's in the 90s. Um, but, you know, this this final season, as we head into the final weeks of Congress, even though they just came back, where you have the budget, the Supreme Court, confirmation hearings, other important things, and then the elections. What is it we want? Because we're not accomplishing anything. And those that are moving us away from our constitutional traditional values seem to find ways to win even when they're officially not in power, certainly when they are. What we're doing is not working. Where is that vision? Where is that vision? And speaking of no vision, before we go back to immigration at the end of the show, I just want to touch on something I'm seeing literally right now, and I'm actually texting with my uh, Latin Amer- American advisor, Joseph Humeyer, guy we had on the show a couple times. We should really have him back. Marco Rubio is calling for military intervention in Venezuela. I mean, just, just no understanding of what it is we seek internationally, nationally, um, you know, because of what's going on there, we're getting a tremendous amount of immigration from there. And obviously, we need to focus a lot, as we mentioned the last couple of months, on Latin America, but not in terms of this open-ended nation building, in terms of working with the stable allies we have to isolate Venezuela um, and obviously border security. This, this nation building stuff would be foreign to our founders. And again, I just want to reiterate with this soldier, another soldier killed in Afghanistan. What we're doing there is mind-boggling. It would be mind-boggling enough to spend 18 years in a place refereeing civil wars between mud hut munchkins that cannot hurt us unless we bring them here and allow them into our country and then allow them to operate their terror financing networks on our shores, as we've done numerous shows on that. But what's worse is that we have this agenda to prop up their military. And I'll never forget, you know, I'll never forget 
that when was this? It was it was a little over a year ago now when you know it was last August when Trump introduced unveiled the new strategy for Afghanistan and you could tell I mean he didn't want to do it. But basically we have military control now um where they just go on autopilot and then you know the civilian leadership feels impotent in in saying no. They want to continue doing their stuff. So we had a guy I forgot why we allowed him space to write a conservative review, but, but this guy from Heritage to to write, you know, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. This is something totally new. This is a new strategy. We're not fighting their war. We're just enabling them to fight their war. And what I pointed out at the time is I said, they're trying to downplay our involvement, but in fact, it's the worst possible mix. It's what I call engaging in um, social engineering and social work in a combat zone. So you can engage in social work in a peaceful area. You can engage in combat in a combat zone. The worst thing is to engage in social work in a combat zone because our guys are sitting ducks. So they're kind of sitting there, and and we had uh, Captain Jaron Jackson on the show last year describing what it was like to be a platoon commander and have all these guys that would know their troop movements and they'd have to trust them, and at any time they could turn on them and shoot them, and they lead them into ambushes, all sorts of things. I mean, this this is normal. This is what they're dealing with. It, it, it's pretty much as untenable as what our grandparents' generation dealt with in, uh, you know, Saipan and um, Okinawa and Iwo Jima, except there. You had the sheer determination, and you had a viable outcome, kill the enemy, and that's it. See, here, there is no outcome. There's nothing to kill unless you literally kill every human being in Afghanistan, but what's the point? As we've said many, many times, if you understood what is it we actually want— Military intervention is not the tool for most of these battles. There are some places where we need to reserve a military deterrent. But anyway, this is Marco Rubio. Now he wants to go into Venezuela. It's funny. The one place where they won't talk about military operation is Mexico. Right on our border that's causing just unimaginable devastation. And that's that's what I want to get to. You want to talk about our founders and a mission, and a vision. Could they have envisioned hundreds of thousands and millions of people coming from another country doing so much harm to our country? Folks, that is not immigration. It's not even illegal immigration. It's an invasion. It's a total invasion. I lost track. I'm going to do an article roundup of all this, but just over the last week, I've noticed about four or five cases of illegal alien drunk driver hit-and-run cases where they just completely um, left the scene, but then the police tracked them down. This happens a lot, and the media is covering it up, and the political class is covering it up. This is such a big problem. And by the way, we, we mentioned this two weeks ago with – the murder of Molly Tibbetts in Iowa. We mentioned this. It's all about clamping down on identity theft. 
You clamp down on that, they can't be in the country. Yet, time and again, we have repeat illegal alien drunk drivers and, you know, whatever. Oh, by the way, another case, um, this guy, a suspected MS-13 guy from El Salvador, was caught by police on Saturday breaking into some apartment in Brooklyn, New York, and raping an 11-year-old girl in her sleep. So, lovely. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to find out more about his immigration status, but they never tell us anything. But before we hang it up for today, I want to... I want to read an article to you about just just one of these cases. I'm not going to go through all of them. I want to read you um, this case in, where is this? Actually, the Miami Herald that I have in front of me. Um, I just want to see if I can get you a better article. I actually saw this from Dave Bratt. He sent to me. Um, so let me get just the original source here, the Richmond... Uh, Times dis- Dispatch. So this was in Chesterfield County, outside of Richmond, nice area. Federal immigration authorities filed detainers on two Guatemalan nationals charged in Chesterfield hit-and-run crash that killed young boy. Um, killed young boy and severely injured his parents and older brother. Neither of the men have driver's licenses. Both defendants are now facing deportation after I... After after ICE officials determined they were either in the country illegally or violated the terms of their lawful immigration status, uh, given that they're from Guatemala, I'd imagine they're here here illegally. Edelberto Hernandez Perez, 28, is unlawfully residing in the U.S. And I spokesman said Wednesday, Hernandez Perez told Chesterfield authorities that he has been living in the U.S. and Virginia for five months and works as a plumber, according to court papers used to determine his eligibility for bail. So that guy they know is illegal. 28. Notice he's from Guatemala. Notice he came recently. This is that great big wave of immigration we've had since 2014 from Central America. Next, the immigration status of Jose A. Gonzalez Flores, also 28, who police say was driving a borrowed pickup truck that plowed into the back of the family's car on Saturday, is less clear. It appears... He had some earlier interaction with federal immigration services, but an ICE spokeswoman said she was prohibited under the agency's privacy policy from releasing additional information about him at this time. I guess that means they can't 100% confirm he's illegal, so maybe he's legal and they don't want to violate privacy policy, whatever. However, ICE is now seeking to have him removed from the country. Um, Gonzalez Flores told Chesterfield authorities he's been in the community since 2013 and has worked construction jobs over the past five years according to court documents used to determine his eligibility for bail. This is what we talked about last week, by the way. This is what we talked about. He had to have had a stolen identity to be doing this. And if you had the IRS and Social Security working together, they, they, you know, because the company, the construction company, would have had to file payroll taxes. They would have gotten this. So many lost lives due to nothing. And, and, and talk about a vision. I have 25 ideas I penned on Thursday on immigration that the Republicans could come back now in September, push as many of them in the budget bill, the rest do a standalone messaging bills, take it back to their districts, you know, campaign on it, run ads on it. No, there's no vision, and there's certainly no conservative movement that will be focusing on it. Let's continue. 
He also said he lives with a woman with whom he has a child. Folks, that child, under our current erroneous policy, is considered an American. Unbelievable. Despite having no driver's license, Gonzalez Flores has racked up, look at this, has racked up at least eight local driving offenses since 2014. It's in four years and was declared a fugitive by Hopewell authorities for failing to show up to court on charges of driving under suspension and failing to obey a traffic signal court record show. Eight times. This is exactly like the case with Eileen Smith, um, the woman we had on the show uh, in July discussing how she lost a son due to illegal alien drunk driver, also had about eight, nine um, priors. And was never deported. Gonzalez Flores frequently has been convicted in absentia and owes more than 1300 in fines and court costs for five of his convictions. He has been found guilty three times of having no driver's license and two times of driving under suspension, which means he continued to drive after being directed by a judge or DMV not to drive. The, the issue is not being directed not to drive. The issue is being thrown out of the country. He was also convicted of driving with an open container of alcohol and reckless driving for speeding, 85 miles an hour in a 65 zone, court records show. And again, this is a cultural problem among these people. Now, what were the details of this particular accident? Um, police say Gonzalez Flores was behind the wheel of a 2011 Dodge pickup that slammed into the rear of the family's 2000 Toyota Camry, which was stopped in the right westbound lane of Belmont Road to make a turn onto Jean Drive. After the crash, witnesses uh, saw the pickup leave the scene and turn onto Lamplighter Drive. The driver then abandoned the vehicle and fled on foot to, to Hernandez Perez's residence. Um, the two men are friends. Hernandez Perez then drove Gonzalez Flores back to his residence in the 4600 block of Peppercorn Place in another vehicle, police said. Um, I'll link to this article. But I want to tell you guys, this is the issue we should be dealing with. This is the vision. It's hard to give a vision on every policy issue at once. But if you want to win this, this election, to me, the issue, the issue is immigration at this point. It's stopping this invasion because it, at, at the end of the day, this is, this is why we have a government. You know, we talked about the acrimony that occurred between the colonies when they didn't want to form a federal government. They were like, why do we need it? This was it. It was for this. You know, Madison said in Federalist 45, the powers of the federal government are few and defined, but they were to be applied, quote, principally on external objects. That's external safety. The safety of the entire union. That's what they needed. That is the number one job of the government. And it's so redressable. If you did any of these 25 things I'm suggesting, you wouldn't have this. They wouldn't be in this country. It's all avoidable. They commit a hell of a lot of crime. Unbelievable how much crime they commit. It's truly astounding. But particularly this problem with drunk driving or just general reckless driving. You know, a lot of a lot of you guys in the audience, very smart audience, 
uh, are sending me just cases in your communities that it's not even reported. I don't even see it. You know, these are the cases we ultimately find out about their immigration status. This happens every day. You know, one of the indictments against King, J- King George enumerated in the Declaration of Independence was, quote, and, it, and he has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. Now, obviously, it's not politically correct to talk that way about Indians this day, but the point is it was to protect your frontier. Now we have a government that doesn't protect our frontier, and you know once they don't protect our frontier, well, they get into all 50 states. Where's the vision? It's so easy to have a vision on immigration. There's nothing more fundamental than that. You know, I think back, you know, talk about the great Roger Sherman. Um, Roger Sherman was really, in many respects, among easily among the top three, four greatest founders. He was the only one to sign all four documents. You know, Declaration of Independence, the um, Continental um, Association that originally created the Continental Congress, the Articles of Confederation, and obviously the Constitution from the state of, of uh, Connecticut. He was the one that crafted the ultimate compromise between Madison and Patterson that really paved the road for, for the Constitution. Without him, it could very well be everything would have fallen apart. Um, so he became a congressman, I think later a senator too, but he was a congressman in 1790, the Debate on Naturalization Act. It was one of the first acts of Congress when they got into session, 1790. And he said it was very clear. It was intended by the convention who framed the Constitution. What better guy to give testament to that in Congress than the guy who was there? That Congress should have the power of naturalization in order to prevent particular states receiving citizens and forcing them upon others who would not have received them in any other matter. He talked about the federal control was designed to guard against an improper mode of naturalization and prevent individual states from flooding the country with immigrants based on easier terms. Folks, that's why it was given over to the feds, to stop what we would call nowadays sanctuary cities. There's nothing more fundamental than that. That is the battle of our time. They didn't form a constitution, and our forefathers didn't fight for it in the Civil War and World War II and all the other times so we could just openly self-immolate and bring the problems to our shores and harm our citizenry. So we're going to continue focusing on immigration this week. Obviously, we're going to have our comments on the Kavanaugh hearings and continue to give a broader vision on what the judiciary should look like, not just chasing our tail on appointments, but what the judiciary should look like. And then, of course, the budget bill. We would make – we should – I mean a sane – Republican Party and a same conservative movement would have been fighting the entire summer with ads and messaging and having keeping Congress in to push budget bills that have these immigration priorities. I mean, imagine if you had a budget bill that would mandate ICE deportation of every um, any illegal arrested for drunk driving. Mandate that local authorities turn them over. And have all sorts of punishments for localities that fail to do so. Watch them vote that down. 
So sad. And then, and then of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention. Um, I mean, there's so many of them. I I, I have to keep track. But um, this was, gosh, when was this? It was last week sometime. It didn't occur. It occurred maybe two weeks ago. It was announced by ICE last week. This illegal alien from Mexico, Eduardo de la uh, Lima Vargas, was drunk driving, plowed into this couple, Logan and Jessica Wilson, who are on a motorcycle, killed them instantly, and now they are they, they leave behind three young orphans. This guy lived in Marion County, Oregon, which is a sanctuary jurisdiction. And guess what? Much like with Eileen Smith's murder, her, uh, the murder of her son, Vargas had a DUI conviction dating back to 2001. And then he was placed in a diversion program and was never turned over to federal authorities. By the way, that's a whole other problem. Putting immigration aside, we have just a general leniency problem with um, drunk driving because of criminal justice reform. Why should we be loading up our prisons? Well, yeah, I'm not necessarily in favor of loading up our prisons, but you need a deterrent. So you got to be willing to do it when people violate that, but the hope is if you're strong enough, you know, you actually solve the problem. But anyway, not to get down on crime, we'll, we'll, you know, we have plenty of other opportunities to discuss that. But imagine if we pushed that and the president pushed it and we had a budget fight in September. But instead, we're going to spend every day, now that Congress is back in session, reacting, reacting, reacting to the left, not being proactive with, with, with a vision. I don't know what the answer is, but for now we got to speak the truth and try to give that vision, light that fire. And in order to give that vision, I need your ideas. Email me at dharowitz.crtv.com. Tweet at me at rmconservative. Um, I don't always see it. Uh, email is certainly better. Uh, let me know your ideas. I don't know. I mean, there is no panacea to you know decades upon decades worth of complacency. But we got to start now. We got to start with a vision, a vision on foreign policy, on military engagements, on diplomacy, on immigration, fiscal policy, health care. That's what we're here for. This is what keeps me going. You know, if I'm not going to have a real job like you guys and do politics my life, by golly, we're at least going to plow a vision. Because a vision is the single biggest thing lacking from our body politic. Thank you all for listening. This will be a busy week. Keep your CRTV subscription. And if you're not subscribed, you're making a big mistake. CRTV.com. Subscribe now. Get the best political commentary out there in America. God bless. Take care.